Hebrews 4, 14 to 5, verse 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal, deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today you have become, I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who came, could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. After our first year of campus ministry, the organization I worked for sent the staff on a 10-day wilderness trip, canoeing through the mountains of West Virginia. Back in college, I spent summers as a camp counselor. I canoed plenty. I taught canoeing. How different could a small inland lake in Michigan be from the rivers in West Virginia? I know what you're thinking. This is going to be a story about how our pastor shined in front of his colleagues earning their deep respect and admiration. Let's not spoil the ending, shall we? The first hour was great. The beauty of that region inspired me to compose <clears throat> this song. West Virginia, mountain mama, country river, take me home. Did you think I was going to say country road? Why would I say I composed a song and then sing something John by John Denver? No, this is what was inspired for me, by me, by those mountains for me. Anyway, things were going great. Then our guide directed us to shore. Our first stretch of rapids was around the next, uh, next couple of bends of river, and he wanted us to anticipate what was coming. The key here... He said over the roar of the river, is avoiding that huge rock in the middle there. Well, that seemed rather obvious. Of course, maybe it only seemed rather obvious to me because, you know, I was an experienced canoer. So the plan was we would shoot the rapids one at a time. Half the group had gone by the time my partner John and I hit that rough water, and I was immediately surprised at the speed. We took off like we were trying to get someone up on water skis behind us. We dipped and splashed. John at the bow yelled directions. We navigated the, the first bend and suddenly there was the rock 
which at that moment looked like the logo for Prudential Insurance. I panicked. You know how the brain loosely divides into three spheres, the rational brain, the mammalian brain, and the lizard, the lizard brain? Well, my lizard brain freaked out, grabbed the paddle, and knocked the other two spheres of my brain out of the canoe. Problem is that while the lizard brain can generate a lot of activity, it's not the part of the brain that stores a working knowledge of, say, how to canoe. That part of my brain was floating around the river bottom. So I paddled. I paddled like a freak with his rear end on fire on the wrong side of the boat, driving us toward the very thing I wanted desperately to avoid. Not only did we collide with the rock, I managed to ensure we hit it sideways. The strength of the current pinned us there as though we'd been welded to the rock. Water poured in over the side, flooding the canoe and soaking our packs. We sat shivering on the rock as, one by one, the rest of the group paddled past. Some concentrated in the river. Some managed to wave and offer a sympathetic smile. Last week, I made the case that the churches in Jerusalem prompted the preacher to compose the sermon we know as Hebrews. The preacher gives us clues as to the, this church's history. They experienced an outpouring of this, the Spirit in the beginning. Right? And it sounds like it was an amazing time. But more recently, they had had to endure some persecution. Nothing fatal, uh, but they've been ostracized, scorned a bit. But as I said last week, they are anticipating worse, not just from their fellow Hebrews, but from Rome. Tension between Israel and their imperial occupiers is nearing this breaking point. The preacher is writing to people fighting off panic, struggling not to surrender the canoe to their lizard brains. He wants them to hold on, hold fast to their confession, to the faith they profess. The preacher does not mean faith in some abstract sense, faith in the universe or in the best always happening. No, it's faith in the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Note what it is about Jesus the preacher wants us to focus on. It's not his capacity to perform miracles. It's his humanity. The high priest who ascended to the heavens can sympathize with our weakness. We do the scriptures a disservice if we assume that a look inside of Jesus' brain would only show serenity and tranquility. When the preacher insists that Jesus shared in our weakness, among the things we're being told is that Jesus had an, an amygdala, that his lizard brain was fully operational. Probably the clearest evidence of this is the evening just before all hell breaks loose. Jesus doesn't talk much about his internal state, but he does that night. He knows what's coming, and the weight of it threatens to kill him. My soul, he says, is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He is struggling to fight off panic. If he does not pray, if his friends don't pray with him, he fears it's a fight he won't win. 
according to Matthew. Jesus does not so much uh, uh, find a place to pray as collapse upon it. It's only then, with his face in the dirt, that he can begin to keep the panic at bay. The preacher presents his prayers as almost a shouting match with the inner lizard. Here again is verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. You know, the cloud of witnesses, the saints that have gone before us, they are worth celebrating, remembering. We need to draw inspiration from their strengths, learn from their weaknesses. They offer us the opportunity to live more deeply into our humanity. They give us something to hold on to when the lizard pipes up. But no one compares to Jesus. I mean, the great high priest. He gets angry that night. He expresses sadness that night. And he had every reason to. All he wants from his best friends is that they pray with him. For him in his, in his time of weakness. And they keep nodding off. Not once, not twice, but three times he confronts them on this. The third time, I have to confront my kids about something. It's, it's difficult not to start speaking lizard, which is English, but louder, and you don't complete your sentence. What the? Didn't I? Are you? But Jesus merely repeats himself. But that's not all that happens that third time. I don't know what exactly gives them away, but it's while he asks again, how could they be sleeping, that he discovers they're no longer alone. Did he see their torches? Did he hear footsteps? After he hears it, how can he hear anything other than the screaming inside his own head? And then Judas. Judas walks straight up to him. How does Jesus do it? How does he let that bastard within five feet of him, let alone close enough to put his face up to him, greet him like they're still friends, like nothing's changed? When he knows damn well everything is about to change, it's all about to go to hell. According to Matthew, Jesus simply says, do what you came for, friend. You know, the lizard brain has a limited bag of tricks. Coincidentally, they all start with F. Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Now that the disciples are awake, they appear only too happy to demonstrate three of the four. First, they freeze. Well, most do. One goes into fight mode. Like some sort of fruit ninja, one swings his sword blindly at the bad guys and manages to take out an ear. Later, the whole lot of them will fly out of there. Freeze. Fight. Flight. In my clinical pastoral experience course, a guest lecturer reminded us to imagine a crowded elevator stuck between floors. What sorts of personalities could we expect to emerge? Well, probably have a know-it-all in there, a nurturer a joker, a superhero. Anyway, but then she asked us, who is the leader in that situation? The non-anxious presence. That's the leader. In anxious situations, people look to the least lizard-like person in the room. And who is that here, here in the garden? 
with everybody pulling out their swords and clubs and one guy screaming and bleeding from the side of his head, who takes control? You know, the fact is the religious authorities have done everything they can to ensure that they are the ones in control. They get one of Jesus' own to get close to him. They come at night when he's alone to ensure that he can't rally a crowd to his defense. And they bring a well-armed mob to his arrest. I mean, this is evidence of some high-functioning pre-cortex thinking, all designed to ensure Jesus surrenders, to send the message that he has no control here. But that's not what happens. Because something has happened to Jesus. The one who only moments before fell, uh, felt on the brink of death has changed. Our first bit of evidence of this is after Judas's dastardly greeting. He says, do what you came for, friend. Do it. He issues an order. Like he's in control. And when chaos breaks out, when first blood is spilt, when swords and clubs are drawn amidst shouts and screams, he's the one who restores calm. He reaches out to the newly minted Van Gogh and heals them. One could argue that maybe, maybe this demonstrates the other F, fawning. He's trying to appease his captors. But this is no lizard move. His prayers... His fervent cries and tears were heard by the God who could save him. What Jesus did in a heap on the ground resembled what our guide sought to do with us before shooting those rapids. He had us climb up to a rocky perch so we could see the stretch of rapids and the obstacles. He offered a clear strategy for getting through it. My problem wasn't that I lacked the skill to navigate it. No, I lacked the humility to listen closely enough and focus on what I'd been told. I didn't realize how vulnerable I was. Jesus collapsed in prayer, well aware of his vulnerability. As the preacher says, he can sympathize with our weakness. He knows what it's like to have your amygdala activated. He gave voice to that vulnerability in anguished prayers. After healing the man's ear, he gives us a hint as to the response to those prayers when what he saw perched on the rock. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? He rose from his prayers as vulnerable as he had been, just as aware of what was coming as he had been, just as sure of the suffering ahead as he had been, but he rose from his prayers, certain he would not allow his amygdala to dictate his response. From the rocky perch, he saw his own vulnerability. He saw his own impending suffering. But he also saw a story unfolding. Not the story of his own liberation. An army of angels could have enacted that story. No. What was unfolding was the story of our 
liberation. The story in which our great high priest atones for the sin of the world. So do what you came to do, friend. Put the swords away. Let's go. The preacher is writing to an anxious church who sense rough waters ahead. They feel vulnerable. We all feel some of that. And the word to them is a word for us. Hold fast. Keep your grip on the faith you profess. Our great high priest is our guide on this wilderness journey. There are no rapids he had he hasn't navigated, no rocks he's not had to confront, no anguish he's not felt, but he will see us through. How else will the scriptures be fulfilled? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.